We need to develop technologies that can ultimately be placed other places in the world. That's our opportunity to have global impact. It's also our opportunity to export our know-how, our technology, our capabilities. This is, this is what the rest of the world wants from us. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode number 72 happening right now, and it's a very special episode. It is our second annual Thanksgiving mashup episode, and this year, well, let's call it what it is. We've actually got a full year of episodes under our belts. We had a few to choose from, which we're very excited about. And listen, there's no rhyme or reason to what we did as far as who we chose. It was just snippets of some of the best guests we've had, and of course, we've had some fantastic guests. I would argue every single one of our guests has been fantastic this year, but hey, that's just us. We, uh, we, we, we might be a little biased to say the least, but hey, we've had a good run so far and we're extremely excited about what's ahead in 2022. But second annual Thanksgiving mashup, we've got seven great snippets for you to get ready for. John Berger from Sonova, Jeff Peck and Daniel Deuce from iSun, Chuck McConnell from the University of Houston, Susanna Cass, uh, Energy Fellow from over at the University of Stanford, Richard Lum from Victory Hill Partners, and Mr. Mark Goodwin from Apex Clean Energy. You're going to hear from them in just a little bit. But before you do that, let's hear from our very own Miss Ann Niemer telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Ann Niemer here, co-founder and COO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know everyone has sustainability needs and wants. We want to help you reach your ESG goal. Our goal is to bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both buyers and sellers. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RFP process. Whether you need to procure energy or find an off-taker for a renewable project, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Our other projects include solar or battery storage development, renewable natural gas or responsibly sourced gas, LED lighting, and HVAC efficiency upgrades, or unbundled RECs or RSG certificates, all helping our customers reach their sustainability goals and meeting their ESG needs. Please visit our website at eRenew.net or call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you so much for that, Miss Ann Niebuhr. Of course, you can find out more about the company over at our website, erenew.net. And of course, stay tuned. Like we told you last week, we're going to have a new website redesign coming at you here very, very soon. We're excited about that. Of course, you can get all the information over on our LinkedIn page as well. Give us a follow on there. You will be glad you did for the latest and greatest of all the things that are happening with the company, as well as all of the latest Green Insider episodes. So without further ado, let's get right down to it. Hopefully you've had a, a wonderful time uh, Thanksgiving-wise. You got friends, you got family around, but hey, we all know sometimes you need a little bit of, of a break, and what better way to take one than with a little bit of some green energy information, some of the best in the biz. So without further ado, here is John Berger, Jeff Peck, Daniel Deuce, Chuck McConnell, Susanna Cass, Richard Lum, and Mark Goodwin. Thank you guys so much. Let's let the show begin, and we'll catch you on the other side. 
What is Sonova doing is, or what have you guys and your team found as far as trying to penetrate markets to let folks know about the importance of solar and what it means to them and, and why it's a good deal to get on? And two, um, you know, what is Sonova's role or what are you guys finding as far as, you know, with infrastructure and what have you, how Sonova can make a difference in so that, you know what, when power does go off, if I've got solar panels, if I've got battery storage, guess what? It doesn't mean I'm waiting for Centerpoint for the next, you know, day, two, however long. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It obviously has driven a lot of business for us this year, you know, starting with the winter storm, you know, Yuri, right back in February. But I have a child sitting at home right now and not be able to go to school because school doesn't have power. And it's in the heart of at the heart of Houston, right? It's not in the outskirts, right? And let's just say the school has some money too, right? So when you look at this, you'd say, why? Why are we doing this? And individuals are, are around town increasingly like, uh, well, why are you sitting without power when candidly your disposable income is really you know, nice? Uh, and the answer is, is that there is no good answer anymore about it. You shouldn't have to deal with this. You're, you're sitting there depending upon a monopoly that has zero competition that kind of just basically gets to it when it gets to it. I mean, there's some efforts there and so forth. But at the end of the day, what do you I mean? You're depending on a single wire on something that was created at the turn of this, not the last century, but the century before that. I mean, it's crazy. That's crazy. They couldn't do virtual school yesterday because there's too many kids that didn't have power in their own homes. So we see a lot of, I, I would say that, especially in Houston has been afflicted with, oh, that's unprecedented. That's never gonna happen again. You know, tax day flood. Then it was, what, what was the 4th of July flood? I mean, we had a flood, we've had a flood on every holiday except Christmas, right? Um, and then they've we all have been 500 year floods. Yeah, 500 year, 2000 year floods. Somebody obviously busted the math um, on, on the probability analysis, right? But when you when you look at all this, and including this week, uh, you, you'd say, you know, look, there's a clear trend here measured in years, measured in multiple data points here. What about this makes you think that things are going to get better? Have you seen any movement at the federal, state, or local level? that really would transform the region's infrastructure and deal with the kind of issues that we have. Have you acknowledged that there is a problem called climate change? It is real. It is not a democratic conspiracy or whatever else that's just been talked about. It is science, it is happening. We can all debate about how much of this is imposed and created by man uh, and the burning of fossil fuels. But at the end of the day, the risks associated with this, and I think this is the right way to think about it is, are so huge that why don't we spend some money and investment, especially when it can create a lot of jobs and wealth and, and, and uh, other community benefits to mitigate that risk, if not eliminate that risk. And I think that's where more and more people are clearly coming out. Um, even in, in Houston is saying like, look, we, we don't, we, this is like sitting there and just insisting that you're gonna watch a black and white rabbit ear TV and, and forget about the, you know, the streaming and flat panel you know, TVs that everybody else has. Why do that? Why are you sitting there uh, and enforcing that upon yourself when there's clearly better solutions and the technology keeps getting better and better um, out there? So we're seeing a lot of demand for that. We're, we're obviously out there trying to you know, make sure that people know that we're out there and there's other solutions out there. Um, and increasingly people are, you know, they want the ability for at least a few hours and days to operate completely off grid and operate their life just as the, that they always do. And increasingly, the technology with solar and storage and service from us is enabling that to, to, to happen. 
So I think that it's a clear trend and, and we get reminded of it, you know, too often here. And, and I think the trend is progressing in terms of more events that unfortunately it's going to happen. And uh, we're seeing more and more people em embrace, uh, you know what, you know, maybe solar is, is, is a, a good deal after all. Uh, and, and I'd like to see, this gets a little, you know, away from answering your question, but I, I think it's very, very unfortunate. It is unfortunate that the energy business has been so politicized over the last years. We don't get a true view of technology, what it's happening, being open-minded to it and saying, we can make money with solar. We can make money with oil. Why do we sit there and have somebody insist on being on one camp or the other? Because there's no way we can put solar panels in everybody's home, you know, by the end of the year, you know, in Houston, Texas, or anywhere else, right? We are going to have to have a transition here. Now that transition is probably going to be shorter than people think uh, in some of the conventional energy business, centralized power, oil and gas, and so forth. But there is a transition, so we need to work together to figure out how do we, for instance, like the Houston, Greater Houston area economy, how do we make sure we don't get left behind? We want to make sure we we consolidate, we keep all those oil and gas jobs here. We want to do that. We don't want to get rid of that. Why would we want to do that? But what we want to do is make sure that we're also setting ourselves up for, it's not the future, it's the present. And it's getting more and more of a presently as a, as a larger part of the industry. So let's, let's scout them both and put them both in here. And I think you're seeing more and more of that open mind. I know you are more, more of that open mindedness and saying, yeah, let's, let's embrace it all in energy and have, you know, Houston be a leader in that. That lifestyle of clean energy, charging your house, your car, whatever, iSun's going to be able to take care of you from soup to nuts. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, the approach that we take and sort of the, the why we're in business is to accelerate the adoption to clean renewable energy. And it wasn't always clean renewable energy, right? Prior to the advancement in solar, we were we were still looking, our, our business in our DNA is to be innovative and to try to help accelerate technological improvements. Right now, there's no greater cause, there's no greater investment that can be made clean renewable solar energy. And so, yeah, we approach the business from the point of view is how can we help accelerate that adoption and how can we best serve our customers who are going to want, going to, want to do that? So building a platform really that focuses on the transition to EVs and how it impacts each sector. So how it's going to impact the homeowner, every homeowner you know who has their car is going to have a job. How can we help where they work, have charging at their, at their offices, in their buildings for their fleets? That will now impact those commercial businesses, but also like the industrial size projects. I mean, in, the, in our industry, they call it CNI, commercial and industrial, but I really view it as two separate unique uh, segments. The industrial side of it is, is larger arrays, maybe up to 20, 50 megawatts that serve, you know, microgrids for big companies that might do community solar projects that might be investments uh, by the utilities. And so that's a, that's a, a different market, but that market is going to see increased demand based on this as well. There will be some homeowners who don't have uh, the ability to have solar on their house. Maybe they're a renter or maybe they're not going to be there very long. Maybe the roof, they've got, you know, large trees in their yard, but they want to have clean renewable energy. So we can build using our development assets internally and our utility division internally, we can build community solar assets that can allow those residential customers to access clean renewable energy. And of course, the utilities are going to see this massive spike in demand based on this transition to EVs that's coming over the next you know, five years or so. We'll, we'll start to see it really accelerate and we want to be prepared to serve them. And so our development services and our utility solar EPC services will really help the utilities replace the fossil fuels 
that'll be coming offline. I mean, I think in 10 years, I don't know if we'll be burning coal anymore. If if we are, there won't be much of it. All that power needs to come from somewhere. And, and uh, we can build solar at a, at a very low rate for these utilities. And we want to be involved in that process. For every iSun, you guys are dotting I's, crossing T's, have tremendous relationships with your customers and have a plan in place. You know, some places, maybe they're just throwing something up against the wall. Hey, we're going to try to get to carbon this. We, you know, we're going to employ all this power. But it's, it's kind of a shotgun approach. Are you worried that there's too much of that going on and maybe there's not enough direction as to how this energy transition is going to unfold? Yeah, we, we call them bragawatts, right? Um, a lot of announcements and less panels being commissioned. So there are two sides of that coin. I call it the, the push-pull there's the, the pull of customer demand, right? Consumers want renewable and sustainable products to a degree that we've never seen before. They will pay premiums for those products, whether it's carbon-free spaces to live and rent, or whether it's consumer products or um, manufactured goods. And at, of course, retailers want to provide the products that are being demanded. And so we, we, see, it, we see that sort of invisible hand of economics working really effectively to create substantial demand. And then there's the push side of the equation as well, which is regulation, increased regulation driven by those same folks when they go to the voting polls and they, and they vote for more progressive leadership or they vote for renewable energy standards um, or folks who will put those in place. And so you, you combine those two things along with the preferred economics, of course, of the fact that solar is the cheapest electron ever generated by humanity. And, uh, and it's an unbeatable set of market conditions. So there, I think there'll be bumps along the way, but I believe that many corporates, their sustainability ESG goals are absolutely bedrock and they're founded in data and they're founded in really solid planning. You know, you see JP Morgan Chase executing projects nationally at unprecedented scale and raising an unprecedented amount of funding to support uh, others' projects. It's just absolutely phenomenal and record-breaking programs that a variety of bulge bracket banks and, and corporates are rolling out. One thing that we're seeing that I, I think is particularly exciting for us as an industry is, of course, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Walmart have all had 100% renewable energy objectives for a long time, uh, many of them for years, but they are almost all of them now pu pushing those mandates down their supply chain, right? And greening their supply chains. So you go from one set of large businesses uh, but a relatively small number of them to millions and millions of logistics providers, product providers, manufacturers, commodities producers that all have to, if they want to continue to supply to, to all those uh, large corporates, they have to do something about their carbon footprints and, and demonstrate reliable e ESG. So not only is a true ESG program a a benefit in terms of competition, a strategic advantage in the marketplace for many uh, across all sorts of services and industries. But those same folks also have to avoid potential consequences from regulation down the road, and they've got to serve their customers. So I think we're in an ecosystem that the transition is absolutely, absolutely unstoppable. So we're still on the solar coaster. We'll have some years that are better than others, but the, the trend here is going to still be very exciting. When somebody is attempting to achieve their scope one, two, or three, 
do the different things that they do, different attributes that they're trying to bring in, have a score? How do you know when you achieved your scope one? Is everything scored or is it just a perception of a score? When somebody converts some of their natural gas to renewable natural gas, is there a score tied to that that says, hey, instead of using the old-fashioned gas coming out of the ground, we're using renewable natural gas? Can you kind of put that in elementary terms so the listener can maybe understand how you achieve that carbon neutrality? Is it based on a score or is it just figment of somebody's imagination and they pull the trigger and say, okay, we're through scope one? Let me answer your question by saying it's not as bad as a figment of somebody's imagination. Okay, and that's good. <laughs> and it's not as good as a rigorous scorecard that everybody understands completely. Uh, and let me be a little bit more specific. If you look at global scorecards that are out there, and there's a bunch of them, there's at least a dozen different scorecards around the world, often under the umbrella of ESG, Environmental and Social Governance. And there's scoring that goes on around the world. And a lot of that scoring is actually developed by investment houses in places like Europe and other places around the world. And they're scoring these different investment opportunities and companies based upon how they see their movement in ESG. Some of that's carbon footprinting, but it has a lot of other things. There's about 17 different elements to a, a scorecard in many of these ESG. And so I, I'd say that we have to remind ourselves that when we turn the clock back, let's say 40 years, and we decided we wanted to take sulfur out of gasoline, and we wanted to take NOx and SOx out of the stacks of coal-fired power plants and natural gas facilities in our country, we put in technology standards, best available control technology. We put a marker on the board in terms of how the performance of those units would actually need to be to comply. And then over time, we matured in terms of our understanding of how to make that happen, the scoring, the record keeping, and all of that kind of stuff. I would say today it's, it's part of business as usual. All of this ESG carbon footprinting is pretty new if you, get, if you really get down to it. And so much of the definition is occurring as we speak. It's done through leadership, consortias of companies that are getting together, the leading companies that are out there. But I will tell you, there is no singular face to the oil and gas industry or the petrochemical industry or frankly, the electric power industry. I mean, they all, they all operate as, as a unit in terms of how you look at them. But I guess the performance in each of those areas, a lot of times driven by the companies. Now you have scoring mechanisms here in our country. I'm sure you're familiar with the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting scorecard. It's something that many companies actually spend quite a bit of time performing against. But the biggest thing you can do as a company is to make sure you have a relationship with those that are doing the scoring so you can actually educate them on what you're doing. Because you sure don't want them trying to figure out what they think you're doing because they probably won't get it right. <laughs> 
So, so there's a lot of iteration that goes into this that's, that's really challenging to the point that you're making. So again, it's not as bad or as good as the way you framed it. It's kind of, it's, it's evolving and it's moving along in that direction. And of course, you've got places in the world, European companies are, are very rigorous about this. In, in some ways, I think they're trying to create the illusion of precision in terms of the way they proceed and, and try to get this. But, but they're, they're really out in front. Many U.S. companies coming behind. Then you've got places in the world like China and Indonesia and South America and Africa, frankly, even the Middle East. If you look at the scoring mechanisms of many of those national energy companies around the rest of the world, you'll find they're way behind. And the amount of emissions and the amount of impact to the environmental footprint globally is far greater in Asia, Africa, and South America than it is in the United States or Europe. And when you have countries like Norway that are leading the world in carbon management, you have to kind of sit back and wonder, they don't even have any emissions in Norway, pretty much, right? So it's, it's, it's really kind of interesting how you look at the rest of the world and you see where that greatest impact's going to come from. I happen to believe that's why it's so important that in our country, as we define leadership, we need to develop technologies that can ultimately be placed other places in the world. That's our opportunity to have global impact. It's also our opportunity to export our know-how, our technology, our capabilities. This is, this is what the rest of the world wants from us. They don't want politicians showing up, shaming them, and telling them to stop doing what they're doing. I mean, a lot of the people in those countries don't even have any energy, for Christ's sakes, right? So what, what they're looking for is for us to show up with solutions not pontificate about behavior. And that's, I think that's a real big part of also, I think what a lot of people in this country need to get their head wrapped around. And, and it's why U.S. companies have to continue to provide that kind of leadership because I think it's a business opportunity as much as it is an environmental opportunity. How much power is actually used in kilowatt language or megawatt language in a typical data center because they're extreme users of electricity, and I'm just trying to illustrate a picture. Yes, Mike, thank you for asking that question. Uh, metrics in terms of the power capacity is extremely important. So I would say in general, and everybody like to think about Ashburn because uh, that is one location throughout the United States that have the concentrate of data center. Just over COVID, we have built 800 new megawatt to support the hyper growth caused by the lockdown of the pandemic. Because everybody just basically converted and pivoted to a digital life. And in order for us to support the hyper growth of Zoom, which overnight become a verb, a noun, a lifestyle, and no one have actually even heard of them prior to COVID-19 in March, and they grow 400% month to month since March, or Google have picked up 4 million is what they reported, new users on Google Meet 
every month since the COVID. And just by supporting that and Amazon and many of the online tailor just to support the COVID to get us groceries, to get us the essential items because none of us can go out to the store safely anymore. By having all of that in about 10 or 11 months or so, Mike, 800 new megawatt of data center were built. Wow. For those of you who don't know, every one megawatt running 24 by 7 in one year emit 7.78 million pounds of carbon emission in the air. And if you use renewable energy, that number goes away. That is the equivalent of removing 17 million and a half miles of car off the road of the emission. It is big number. What you both are working on in the renewable energy makes a difference to our environment and the community is served. Since you see the picture all around the globe and we hear the word energy transition all the time, is that those two words, energy transition, have a different meaning in different countries? Is it relatively the same meaning all across the world? That's another interesting question. I think energy transition may mean something different in Asia than it would do in a developing country or a developing country, shall I say. Um, like the US or the or Western Europe. I think I think Western Europe in particular, when we talk about energy transition just more broadly, people think of it as just purely the end goal, which is uh, renewable power generation. And they think that's what the energy transition means. I think it has a wider meaning and a wider context in still developing economies where they have to meet, you know, the the, the challenges of providing you know access to reliable energy to to their populace as well as meeting climate change objectives as well so that's really what the true meaning of transition is we want to transition from where we are now to the end goal and that's much more meaningful to developing economies than to developed ones essentially i i'm not so sure if i you know uh, made that point uh, uh, clear but that that's my perception certainly a lot of people throw that word around but i truly feel like they don't understand the meaning that they're transitioning from the old oil and gas ways to the new sustainability ways. I think there's so much in between there. I don't think everybody views it quite the same way. No, absolutely. And I think transition also implies that there is a process involved. that You can't simply switch off the tap and expect to continue as we do now with 90% of what makes up our houses. You know, ultimately, you still need to have all these products around the house or whatever, but you need to manufacture it in a much more sustainable way, in a decarbonized way. So that, that, that act of decarbonization is implicit with energy transition. It's not simply just about flicking the switch and thinking everything is now just um, renewable full stop. Well then, you know, how do we get access to what you know, makes you know, this society tick at the moment? It is, a, is this period of transition and decarbonization in my opinion. Is enough being done with transmission? Because we can put all the wind, we can do all the solar, and, and hell, you can do all the green hydrogen, but is the transmission technology there? Is there enough capability? I think the technology there is there. It's just the ability to permit site and finance transmission is 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 one of the hardest things in our business. So it it takes it's it's like it's like developing an offshore wind farm. It takes years. It's it's capital intensive. It's like expensive to develop those sites. It's it is hard to get like you know the multiple approvals for transmission lines. So it is um, it is key. 
uh, for us to be able to, to achieve the high penetration that I talked about earlier for transmission to come along. But there's plenty of new technology, you know, high voltage DC technology. There's technology for underground uh, transmission, which is also expensive, but is sometimes a, a key for siting in certain areas where it's it's harder for you to have the above ground high voltage um, transmission. So I wouldn't say that the technology is like an impediment. It's it's really the federal, state, RTO, um, region, interregional planning that stops it, that, that makes it harder to do transmission. But we're you know, we work, we're working on our own, uh, on some of our own private transmission plays, which involve large, you know, renewables, um, you know, trying to get from one underserved, from one like high resource region to a high demand region. And I, I think that's going to be, hopefully there's people uncrack the code on like building more and more transmission because, you know, the the, the wind blows in places where, you know, there's not as much, you know, renewable energy demand and the sun shines where some typically in places where there's not as much renewable energy demand. So transmission is a key to unlocking that. Thank you so much for that. And we want to thank everybody again for tuning into the Green Insider podcast. Hopefully you've had a great year so far. We've got a great end to the year coming up as well. We've got some fantastic episodes in the hopper. We're finishing 2022 strong. We're finishing 2021 strong. And we're going to get 2022 off to an even better start than we did in 2021. I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you to the entire e-renewable family, Mike Niemer, Ann Niemer, Al Gallo, and more importantly, all of the Green Insider listeners. Listen, without you guys, we wouldn't be able to get this done. And of course, all the Green Insider guests, Steve Shepard, Donna Foy, the entire NEMA team, everybody that's been a part of this journey for the, these last 18 months. We've had just a tremendous run and we're only getting started. So thank you so much for that. Once again, I hope you guys all had a fantastic Thanksgiving. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay tuned for next week. We've got a lot of great stuff coming. And like we said before, we're going to finish 2021 even stronger than we did before. So for all of the team at eRenewable, this has been the Green Insider Podcast powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier.